We'll be looking, we'll be reading Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. In your pew Bible, which I have right here in my hand, is page 978. And as Justin said, the ears to hear and pray for my eyes to see, because these words are really small. Page 978, Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." This is the word of the Lord. When Miriam and I were first married, I got a job working for Peary Construction Company. We built high-end homes for multimillionaires. But when I say we built homes, that is a massive stretch. Because you might at first imagine, if I tell you that we built homes, the 22-year-old version of me with a head full of hair and carpenter bags around my waist... But that would be a mistake because I didn't build anything for Peary. It would be more accurate to envision me with a broom or a shop vac in my hand. See, I didn't do any of the construction. I just cleaned up after the constructors. I was the, uh, the cleanup guy, and it was a humbling experience. But I remember specifically when we were working on this one house where my job would be. And now get this. The, the prestige of this. The glory of this. The dignity of this. My job was to hose off the street in front of the house. This gigantic house being built in this very high-end neighborhood, so we couldn't be having dirt in the street. No way. No dirt in the street. So day after day, I'd show up to work, uh, grab my tools, grab the hose, and get to spraying for hours. It, was, it felt like very much an exercise in futility. I mean, the muddy contractor trucks would literally be driving right over the streams of muddy water uh, right in front of my face. It was, it was a job that never ended and pretty much always felt futile. None of us want to work jobs like that, that at the end of the day feel futile, futile and empty. But probably more than that, definitely more than that, none of us want to wonder on our deathbed if we even get the opportunity for afforded a few days or weeks to process death before we experience it, none of us really want to wonder what this whole journey of life was for anyway. How can we know now that it's not all for naught? Today's text can help answer this for you. It can protect you from getting to the end of your life and being forced to admit with a heavy heart, ah, I never accomplished anything of true significance or my life was just a big fat pile of wasted weeks and years. Or like one theologian describes it, no one wants to believe that it's all meaningless, 
meaningless in the end. Like a man who works hard planting trees and landscape flower gardens and a new housing project and then watches them get bulldozed because he was just doing his own thing and never consulted the master plan for where they belonged. There is only futility in the end without relating all that you do to God. This, takes, this text that we're in today makes startling claims to those of us who don't claim to believe in and then follow Jesus. Most of us would put our category in believing in and claiming to follow Jesus. But this text says... Life is futile without the illumination of God's word in the person of Jesus Christ. So I imagine if you are not believing, you're kind of on the fence about faith this morning, uh, that this text could feel pretty jarring to you today. So truly, I mean this, if anything to you today feels offensive or feels off, it would be an honor to sit down with you and speak with you about this and just hear you out and dialogue on this. So please don't hesitate. Uh, it's not that intimidating to sit down with me, I promise. Let's, let's hang out and have coffee and talk. But the reality is, whether you're a Christian or not this morning, this text flattens all of us and it humbles each one of us in here today. God, through Paul, does not hold anything back. He's, he's willing to risk offending us in order to help us escape this life of futility. It's offensive to be told that we are living a futile life, isn't it? I mean, no one wants to hear that, that your life is meaningless. But what if by hearing this bad news, you can actually find your way to some good news? That by God's grace, your life can take, take on deep meaning in this life and in the next life. In that case, the bad news is just a bridge to the best news. So let's get into it today. Verse 17, look down at your text. Paul says, now this I say, That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. There's that futility idea. And we won't unpack this morning what Paul, fully unpack this morning, what Paul means by Gentiles. Um, Basically, he just means non-Christians. And he says that these non-Christians, people who don't believe in Jesus, lead futile, ultimately meaningless lives. This is why I said if if you find yourself on the fence of faith or completely outside of faith, it might just feel a little bit uncomfortable this morning. It's pretty hardcore for Paul to be saying, making a claim like that. So Paul is saying that the Gentile worldview, the worldview of a non-Christian, renders their lives ultimately futile. In other words, any life that isn't oriented to God and to this book and to his word is ultimately futile. And there are four primary things that he points to here that mark the walk of the unbelieving world. And if you pay attention, these ideas are linked with connection words that indicate dependencies. In other words, there is a logical connection between these various things, and I'm going to try to highlight that for us right now. So uh, I'll, I'll try to show it on screen. This is verses 18 and, 18 and 19. He says, they are darkened. And just stop right there at that word darkened. Let me just stop there and say that the Bible is super clear that all of us, every human being ever, was born in this state a state of darkened understanding. We were all the they. I am they, you are they. We are all the they that were darkened. In other words, apart from the light that Jesus brings, what we read here is the universal condition of the human heart. We were darkened, universally the story of humanity. So they are darkened and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, which is due to their hardness of heart. And so they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, 
greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So their darkness and alienation from God is because of their ignorance about God. And their ignorance is all due to their hardness of heart, which has led them to give their lives up to sensuality and impurity. So let's break these things down real quick. First, they're called hard-hearted, hardness of heart, right? Humanity's deepest, deepest problem, at the problem of every single human being's set of problems, is a hardness of heart. Do you see it there in verse 18? Their, hard, uh, their darkness and alienation and ignorance are all due to the hardness of heart. So every human's deepest problem in life is that apart from the free and sovereign and good grace of God, their hearts are darkened against God. We were not born spiritual sponges. We were born spiritual stones with no absorption capacity for the good truth of God. It's like the hamburger that I found in room 201 this last week. I, I kid you not. It was like hidden up on a top shelf in there. I don't know who the culprit is, but if you are, you need to cross yourself or something right now. But I don't know how long that thing has been sitting in there. Um, but it was literally hard as a rock. Uh, normally, we like our bread to be nice and spongy, right? But three-year-old hamburgers are not like that. And neither was your heart when you were born. We are born hard-hearted. The gospel truth of God did not move us. It was not attractive to us. It didn't delight us. This is humanity's deep and darkest problem that we are hard-hearted, but Paul's not done. He's going to pour it on this morning. He also calls us dark-hearted. Second, there is a deep darkness that blinds us to the glory of the gospel. You can see it in verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding. We even confess this reality in one of our songs pretty routinely. I was in darkness all of my life. I didn't even know the day from the night because I couldn't see. But Spirit, you made me see. This reality will gut you if you think about it for any length of time at all. And it should gut us. Before the Lord shined into the darkness of my heart, I was hopeless. There wasn't really anything I could do about my darkness. The Spirit had to make me see. I mean, that is rough news, and it contributes to the futility of an unbelieving worldview. Without light, we cannot see what the point of everything is. What are we even doing here on this planet? What's the point? What's the point of anything? Without light, these are unanswerable questions. We don't know why we're here and what the purpose of anything is. It's like we're blindly wandering around the planet seeking to max out our pleasure just before we die, right? But if we want more meaning than that, we need light from God. In another letter to the church, Paul gives us the solution says this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this is true for every last human being on the planet that has ever lived and ever will. From world-class surgeon to illiterate homeless man, we were all born in darkness and we all desperately need light. And we all have access to it, but some of us reject it. This is why you can have someone like a world-class scientist, like Richard Dawkins. Maybe you've heard of him. And he can make a statement like this. He says, I've described atonement, the central doctrine of Christianity, as a vicious, sadomasochistic, and repellent. 
We should also dismiss it as barking mad. I think he's from the UK, so he uses words like barking. Is barking a, a UK kind of word? All right. Thank you, Trevor and Will. Um, barking mad. What he calls divine madness is actually the pinnacle of divine love. Dude is smarter than I will ever be, but his mind is dark. My mind is light and his is dark, not because I'm smarter, but because God in his grace and by his spirit has lit up the darkness of my heart. That is my story, and I really hope it's yours. If it's not, let's chat. Every one of us is in that condition until the light of the gospel of uh, the glory of Christ breaks in and melts our hardness and dispels the darkness. Now, don't hear me saying that you cannot know anything if you do not know Jesus. That is not at all what I am saying. So hear me in context here. Of course, there's, like the, there's a superficial knowledge in the darkened mind of every man, Richard Dawkins, uh, for instance. But apart from the light switch that only the Spirit can turn on in our hearts, you can know 10 million factoids. You might know all the things. But here's the reality, and it might be the most sobering reality in all of the universe. Without the light of Christ, you cannot see the true meaning of anything. Not one single thing. Because to know the truest and deepest meaning of a thing is to know why it exists in the first place. Colossians 1.16 tells us, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. That is the fundamental meaning of the universe right there. Without this light, we all wander. And when humanity wanders, we end up in dark places. That's what Paul covers there in verse 19. We are self-hearted. So following the logic here, the hardness and darkness and ignorance of my heart results in selfish indulgence. Paul calls it sensuality and impurity, basically just synonyms for seeking pleasure outside of the bounds of God's good design. And so it's here that we have finally reached this level of outward behavior, or like verse 17 calls it, walking or living. That's what's on the surface. All this other stuff that we've been talking about so far this morning uh, is in our thoughts and attitudes and emotions under the surface. Sorry to all of you parents who have heard Encanto's soundtrack one million times right now, but at least I didn't say anything about Bruno, or we know it would be in your minds right now. If you don't know about Bruno, I don't know where you've been, but we don't talk about Bruno. Um, but there's only apparently a very small subset of us that even know what I'm talking about. It's the number one song on the Billboard chart, so when you get home, ask Alexa to play. We don't talk about Bruno. Uh, anyway, everything's been under the surface, but now the fruit of those roots are starting to pro- poke through the soil in verse 19. And here's a way to understand it. When, this is what uh, John Piper says. He says, when a person is ignorant of the true meaning of things and the true values of life as God sees them, that person will make his goal in life something other than God. It may be the gratification of his body and sex or drink or drugs or food, or it may be the gratification of his ego with more refined intellectual and cultural pursuits, anything but God and everything apart from God. And this reality leads us to the result of all of this bad news here, and it's this alienation, being alienated from God. We're born in darkness, and we will wander in darkness unless an outside force acts upon us to draw us into the light. We never drift anywhere good, right? Parents, you've experienced this at the beach when your child is out there and you slowly watch them drift down 
uh, and pulled away by the tide right down the shoreline. You know the, the panic that sets in you and probably in them as well. We never drift into safety. We drift away from safety. We drift from God and are alienated from him because of the ignorance that is in us due to the hardness that is in us. This is the brutal but real-life picture that God sees when he sort of x-rays into your heart. Dark, ignorant, alienated. The question is, what do we do with this really grim description? What do we do with this information? If it's true, how do we actually escape futility? Humanity's methods for cleaning up this mess that we've made for our world are not working. Nothing that we do is working to fix the problem in our world. For example, I can make my kids do something, but I can't make them want to do something. I can't affect them at the heart level. Our government can legislate good behavior, but it can't change the heart. There is no system that can fix our deepest problem, our hearts. It might change our behavior on the surface, but it can't change who we are. And who we are is hard-hearted and alienated from God. So as an example, maybe close to home right now for us in our world, we see this in our race conflict right now, I think. The only thing the world knows how to do right now to fix this mess, to solve the problem of racism, is to legislate certain behavior. You can't say this word. You must hire with diversity in mind. You cannot act in these ways. And I'm not advocating that we not have those laws at all. I'm thankful for many of them. But don't get this twisted, church. Just because those laws are in place does not mean that racism ceases to exist, right? You cannot legislate racism out of someone's heart. Cancel culture won't work either. That is why the Church of Jesus Christ has something utterly unique to offer to the world. It is precious because we, through Jesus, offer true heart change, not just behavioral adjustment. Cancel culture might get rid of a person but it can never get rid of our sin, which is the actual problem that will prevent us from having acceptance with God. So we need an alternative means for mending the broken world and all of its darkness and ignorance and hard-heartedness. And if we don't find the alternative, we are bound for a life of futility and a godless eternity. Paul offers the alternative here. And with some really concrete imagery he enrolls us in school with jesus i say school here because of what language he uses there in verses 20 and 21 where paul sets us in the classroom and the subject of the class is jesus and then the teacher of the class is jesus and paul is like everything that we've talked about so far he's like man this is not the way you learned christ why are you living this way get into the classroom with jesus I can relate to being told that I have learned something wrong. This past week, I googled common core math. And before I could even finish typing the word core, Google automatically finished the phrase that it thought that I was looking for. Can anyone guess what the auto finish was? Common core math, it said, is garbage. I kid you not. <laughs> that, was, that was the first response. Now, if you graduated from high school more than, I don't know, like 10 years ago, or if you don't have kids in school now, or you don't have kids at all, or if your kids graduated from high school 
more than 10 years ago, this probably means nothing to you, just like under the surface or Bruno. It probably means nothing to you. But for the rest of us, I'd be willing to bet that most of us would bet large sums of cash. Um, I, would, I would be willing to bet large sums of cash that most of us would agree with Google that common core math is, in fact, garbage. But why do those of us parents who have to help our kids understand math have such a hard time with this? It's because that's not how we learn math, right? With Paul, I say, I didn't learn math this way. Here Paul says, you didn't learn Christ this way. Learn it the right way. And you might be surprised what kind of school that we are being enrolled in here with Jesus. What kind of school is Jesus teaching in these days? Fashion school. I say fashion because the analogy that Paul uses in 22 and then 24 of taking off old clothes and then putting on new ones. It's like Paul turns on a light switch and you look down at your clothes and you realize that what you're wearing is not befitting a child of the king. And he urges us to take off the behavior of the unbelieving world like a muddy set of clothes and then put on a new different set of clothes of the new man. And the light switch is there in verses 20 and 21. What is that light switch that helps us see what kind of clothes we're actually wearing? It's in hearing the voice of Jesus and being taught by Jesus, verse 21. Hearing and being taught by him. Jesus is the key that unlocks the prison of futility that we are all born in. Jesus is the key that unlocks the futility of the prison, the futility, the prison futility that we are all born in. And with the light of Jesus' truth shining in our lives, we are all called to take off our old selves, verse 22, and then put on our new selves, verse 24. So here's the big idea of the text. It's just this. Change your clothes. Change your clothes. We should ask ourselves, what do these two articles of metaphorical clothing refer to? What is the old person, and then what is the new person? Verse 25, which we'll cover next week, gives us a helpful clue. The same word is used for put off in both verse 25, if you look, and then in verse 22, the text for today. In verse 25, he says, put away or put off or take off falsehood. So it seems like one example of putting off the old person is to put off the bad stuff that belonged to a darkened, godless way of life. Like in verse 25, like lying. But it's more than just the bad things that we do. We learn in other parts of the Bible that it also includes what fuels the bad stuff that we do too. Namely, our thoughts and emotions like anger and lust. You know, all that stuff that's under the surface. So, the old person is the attitudes and actions of the old man that was never taught the Jesus way. It's the old person. That's what we were called to put off. That's who I was before I was called out of darkness by the teacher, by the voice of Jesus, and began to be taught in his fashion school. And then the new man is just the opposite of that. The new person is the attitudes and actions of the new man that Jesus has made us to be and is calling us to be in his school. But now, why is wearing spiritual clothes, these clothes of the new man, so vital? If we are justified, most of us in here have been in the faith for a long time, if we are justified, regardless of the good that we do, why does any of this even make a difference? I hope this will help. There is some tension here. Let's explore this tension and give us a little bit of time to iron out the tension. In Matthew 22, Jesus describes this wedding feast. It's a parable, so 
this king is throwing this gigantic wedding party for his son. He's a king, he's got lots of money, endless sums of cash, and so he wants to throw the biggest party for his son, and so he throws out wedding invitations, and literally on these invitations, anybody could RSVP. There were no limitations. Anybody can get in. Imagine the possibilities of that gift registry. Man. But the day finally arrives, and the banquet hall is just buzzing with countless guests. And here's how Matthew 22 describes it. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? There's those, that clothing idea. And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. What is the point of this? The point is that having the right spiritual clothes is so important for our eternal welfare, church. Without the right clothes, we get expelled from fashion school with Jesus. In other words, we don't make it into heaven without the right clothes. It's that serious. How many shocked, faithful church attenders will, will there be who have received the invitation into heaven but don't make it in because of their clothes? Instead of changing their clothes, putting off and putting on, they tried to make the old clothes as attractive as possible. Instead of changing their clothes, they tried to hide the stains on their clothes with some beautifully curated pictures on social media or a smile on a Sunday, or some kind of service in a nonprofit organization. Some of us still think we can get away with just putting on our Sunday clothes once a week to hide the clothes we normally wear throughout the week. Growing up, some of you probably had these kinds of clothes. I know I did. I had a Sunday suit. I still remember my yellow one. Some of us had Sunday dresses. I did not have one of those. Sunday shoes. I'm not kidding. I, I have a friend who had Sunday underwear in the band. It would just be written Sunday. Um, you may fool us in here with your Sunday best, but God sees right through that into the depths of our hearts. Some of us have not really enrolled in this school with Jesus with our hearts. There are some of us who are not willing to dress for the wedding with our living. Some of us wants to want the benefits of graduation in this school, but we're unwilling to do the coursework with Jesus. So in the meantime, you're having an affair, or you're cheating emotionally on your spouse, or you're stealing in some way from your boss, or you're just an angry parent, or, you know, fill in the blank with whatever it is. On the surface, none of us would know that you're just engaging in that behavior routinely, but these sorts of people, they don't want to change their clothes. They just want to appear that they have changed their clothes. It's all a show. The problem is, just like that guy at the wedding, you may fool us, but you ain't fooling Jesus. And Jesus will say in the end, at graduation day, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. Changing our clothes is not an elective that Christians, true Christians, enroll in and others don't. It's a required course for graduation. Now, because we're sinners, and I'm not arguing that we can ever be perfect and never go back to the old clothes, but because we're sinners, we are tempted to go back to the old clothes often, aren't we? And sometimes we do, but the point is, change back out of them. They're futile, good-for-nothing clothes. But if you're in here and you're like, you have no interest in changing out of those clothes, you should be concerned about the place that your heart is in with God. 
Now, some of you seasoned Christians in here right now are squirming big time. Josh is preaching legalism. We should get up and leave. If that's how you're feeling, hear this. In Jesus Fashion School, your good grades are earned by someone else and then gifted to you. Or if you will, these clothes are crafted for you. You just have to put them on. Jesus' school is a school of gifted grace, not legalistic earning. In the school of legalism, you work and you work and you work and you work and you try to gain the attention of the teacher saying, look how good I did. Look at these clothes I sewed, hoping that he'll be impressed with your new clothes. But the school of grace is something entirely different. In the fashion school of grace, your new clothes are, look at verse 24, they are created. God himself designs and creates the new clothes, the new man, if you will. He creates them, the clothes that we must put on. In other words, you didn't do it. It was done for you. This is totally like any other school in the world. Kids, don't you just so badly wish that your teacher would give you a test with their answers already filled out in it? You'd get like straight A's, which is a feeling I never experienced. It's great. But in the school of grace, we are given the assignment to become like Jesus, the new and perfect man. But then I'm told that God already created it for me. Earlier in Ephesians, we saw this. We saw the same strange concept of required coursework for us that's already been completed by someone else. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All the works that I'm supposed to do and I am called to do them, he has already prepared all of those. It makes you wonder who is really doing the work in this school, after all. But there's a catch here. Let's read this again. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there's this stuff that God does, and then we're also called into this gig too, right? God prepared the works for me, but I'm called to walk in them. Or with our fashion metaphor, God created these righteous robes for me, but I'm still called to put them on. I'm called to put on a life that looks like Jesus' life of righteousness and holiness, verse 24. This is mysterious, I admit. But this is the mysterious scandal of the gospel. It's this. What the Father demands from us, Jesus does for us, and yet also the Spirit does in us. This is the primary message of this school. You just hear this lesson over and over and over again, and I hope you hear it on this Sunday over and over and over again. In fact, there is a, there's a quote up here on the podium uh, that reminds us every week, others may preach as they wish, but as for this pulpit, it will always resound with the substitution of Christ. That's a Spurgeon quote. What the Father demands from us, Jesus does for us. Jesus is our substitute, but also the Spirit does in us. Here's how the most advanced student in Jesus' fashion school of grace put it. It's Paul. He said, I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God which is in me. Paul's like, look, I put in the work. I did my assignments. But really, God did the assignments in me and through me. What the Father demands from us, Jesus thankfully does for us and the Spirit does in us. But functionally, 
That's like theoretical, functionally. How does this look and work in our lives? How do we create space for God to do his work in us as we do our work for him? I think verse 23 holds the the answer for us. Verse 23 is the bridge between 22 and taking the old man off, and then 24, putting the new man on. And it has the answer for how to actually do this. Verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So I'll just state what is maybe the obvious here, but it bears repeating. The way we live begins with how we think. The way we live is fueled by what's going on in here. So what are you becoming by the things that occupy your thoughts? What are you becoming by the things that occupy your thoughts? Is the landscape of your mind occupied with politics? There's no space left for Jesus on that, the landscape of that heart. Are the musings of your mind polluted by ambition to maximize wealth and status in this life? What is your mind preoccupied with? Paul says that the key to taking off the old man and putting on the new is in our heads. It's a head game. It's in renewed minds. Minds that aren't obsessed with politics or career advancement or wealth or whatever, but something else altogether. So how do we renew our minds? Paul answers this question in another letter. It's on screen. Paul says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed. There's that renewal language again, right? We saw it in Ephesians 4, and we see it here in 2 Corinthians 4. It happens inside us, though. This renewal is all, it's in our heads. How, though? We'll keep reading. Uh, By looking not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul was renewed in the spirit of his mind by filling his mind with the unseen, rock-solid realities and truths of eternity, of heaven. So, So locking our minds on the next life can help put everything in this life in perspective. We've got to get this as Christians in 2022. Locking our minds on the next life can put everything in this life in perspective. Fill your mind with the truth of heaven by ingesting the words of this book. Fill your mind with the truth of heaven by by investing time in the truth of this book and ingesting the words of this book. If our minds aren't routinely anchored to eternity, they will be seduced into futility. If our minds aren't routinely anchored to eternity, they will be seduced into futility because they're going to be preoccupied with a world that is obsessed with the here and now because it's all they've got. They've got nothing else. They're not looking ahead to eternity, so they've got to suck it all up right now and get as much pleasure as they can. But this is not how we learn Christ. It's not how we learned it. We have more than the here and now, and this reality ought to impact our real-life decision-making. Friends, God has already put everything in subjection to Jesus. He left nothing outside of Jesus' control. And in the end, when the clock strikes zero, God will have brought all things under his subjection and into unity in Jesus. And we get to be a part of that and experience it and observe it. Even though at present we do not see everything the way that it will ultimately be in subjection to Jesus. Dude, the scoreboard looks rough right now doesn't it? But the victory of pure, Jesus-centered, Jesus-magnifying eternity is already in the books. It's as good as done. That is the unseen reality that must grip us when we're contemplating what clothes to wear. 
This is the future that we have to look forward to, Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Stay tethered to this end right here. This is the way we avoid futility, by keeping eternity in view. The end matters when it looks like things are slipping out of control right now. The end matters when your suffering and pain intensifies. The end matters when there are more questions in your soul than answers. The end matters, and it matters even more than your present, whatever you're going through. I was trying to think about what this might look like in our lives because it's like it's pretty theoretical, and I understand that. Next week, it's going to get super practical, but between now and then, how might we like function in this space of putting off and putting on? Uh, so I, I thought of two areas in our lives that might be affected by this. First, conflict. We all face conflict, right? What, what might putting off the old man and putting on the new in view of eternity look like in the conflict that we experience in our lives, whether it's on social media or in marriage, or with a friend. This side of eternity, there's no way we're going to avoid conflict. So how do we do it in a way that says, heaven is real, and I'm holding on to that hope? Well, the old man says, I got to win in this life, because that's all there is. But the new man views everything in light of eternity. So how about we don't have to win every argument? Because the point of life isn't winning. The point of life is Jesus. If we could just crawl up into eternity and get heaven to drip down into our souls and let it occupy our thoughts, we could know how to engage in conflict in the way of the new man. In the end, Jesus wins. So the new man isn't obsessed with winning. He's obsessed with Jesus instead. So maybe factor this in the next time that you are tempted to just rip into your spouse or your child. Take a breath. Let the new man dictate how you enter into conflict. Eternity puts perspective on our conflict. And here's another one. So that's conflict and then gathering with the saints. Be it on Sundays here or in community groups or at other venues. The old man says, meh, I don't need the church. I don't need to be in community. But the new man realizes how deeply flawed this is. Because we need community to help us understand that we constantly need to be changing our clothes into the new man. Plus, as the Spirit sort of renews our mind, makes us contemplate the realities of heaven more and more, whatever we're prioritizing over gathering with the saints will pale in comparison because we will know the weight and the glory of eternity. So We won't want to uh, put this on the back burner for something that has less weight and glory. So if you have been wavering in your commitment to gather, that's, that's the old man. You need to take that behavior off and put on the new. If there are friends that you know have just sort of tanked and they're gathering with us, reach out to them. It's the most loving, loving, heaven is really real kind of behavior that you could engage in. Woo them back. Urge them back. Christians, we are all tempted to go back to our old clothes, and sometimes we will. When you do, change your clothes. Take them off and put the new man on. The new man views all of this life with a renewed mind that fixes eternity in view. Pray with me, and while I'm praying, the band and the communion servers can come up. Lord, help us in this.
Spirit, we need your, we need your help. It's so obvious to us that uh, we are prone to wander and we feel it, prone to leave the God we love, prone to go back to the old clothes and just try to sort of cover up over all the mess that we make. But I pray that you would cause us to embrace the new, beautiful set of clothes that Jesus earned for us. In his, in his name we pray, amen.